all be challenged to do more for the Lord. 1 John chapter 3, we're going to be reading from verse 19 down through the end of the chapter. And uh, this will conclude the third chapter of 1 John. And I believe it will be a help uh, to, uh, to us this evening. Let's read from 19 down through 24. The Bible says, And hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, look at this phrase here, then we have confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments, and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is the commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in us, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. Back to that phrase uh, in verse number, uh, let's see, verse number 21. Uh, Beloved, if our hearts condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. Notice that word confidence. The title of the sermon this evening is this, Obedience Leads to Confidence. Obedience leads to confidence. Let's pray. Lord, help us this evening as we uh, seek to study and understand uh, these verses. And Lord, help us not to just gain a head knowledge, but Lord, a heart challenge. And Lord, help us all to reevaluate some areas in our life that need to be better. And help us to commit, Lord, to real change. Change in our lifestyles, changes in our attitudes, changes in our actions. Lord, that will help us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. We ask all this in your most blessed and holy name. Amen. Amen. To those of you who got saved as an adult, or maybe even late into your teen years, 17, 18, 19, do you remember both the excitement and the nerves that came along with being saved? You remember the joy that swept over you to know that your eternal destination had been changed, and just the stark contrast of being lost and then being saved, how wonderful that was? And then you walked into uh, Independent Baptist Church or some Christian church for the first time. And boy, did you feel lost. Uh, it's just been in the last few years that churches like ours have been putting uh, lyrics to songs on the screen. You remember the first time you walked into a church and someone handed you a hymnal? And you thought, what, is, what are all these lines and how does this work? And uh, you needed to move from one stanza down to the next. Some of you don't even know what a stanza is, but you know those bars on the page. Uh, verse 1 continued down below, and it took you a little while to get used to that. And you walk in, and you're, you're, you're out of your element. You're out of your environment, and it feels strange, and you can feel the nerves uh, that sweep over you. The pastor would tell you to open your Bible to the book of Job, and you'd flip all over the Bible looking for Job and say, I found Job. But I can't find the book of Job. Where did it go? I remember I had a youth worker uh, when I was a, a junior, senior in high school. His name was Parrish. And Parrish said when he first got saved that uh, he, he uh, preached his first sermon shortly after being saved. Loved being up in front of people. He was a people magnet. And he got up and he said, open your Bible to the book of Psalms. 
Psalms. He didn't know how to pronounce it. He was up preaching and didn't even know how to pronounce it. Maybe you remember the first time the pastor told you to open your Bible to First Chronicles. And maybe it was the first couple of chapters of First Chronicles. And you opened your Bible to First Corinthians uh, over in the New Testament. And the pastor started reading out of Chronicles and there you were in Corinthians. And you couldn't figure out how your Bible could be so different than the pastor's Bible. And you're kind of looking around and everyone else is tracking and following along. And you felt lost. The nerves that go along with being a new Christian. Maybe you sat in church and you listened to some of the other Christians pray. Uh, if you're a lady, maybe in a ladies' class, or uh, you listen to some of the men pray out in the auditorium, and you thought, my goodness, I will never be able to pray such an eloquent prayer like that. I don't even know how to pray for my food, much less pray a prayer that uh, sounds like that. Why? You lacked confidence. You lacked confidence. How does one gain confidence? The longer you do something the right way, the more confidence you gain to perform the task. Uh, how about your first day on the job? Your first day on the job. Now, I don't know what that was like for you, but I know my first day on the job within various uh, work that I've done. I remember the first day, my sophomore year of college, that I arrived at Averett Express uh, in Chicago, Illinois, and it's a cross-dock job. It's a forklift job. You take pallets off of one 53-foot truck, and you move it around to other 53-foot trucks, and you get a stack of papers, and they match up with the freight uh, stickers on uh, the truck there, and you're having to learn a scan gun. You're having to learn how the paperwork goes. You're having to learn how to drive a forklift. I remember just being so overwhelmed, uh, uh, and put your forks down, and uh, make sure they're angled the right way, and if the pallet's too tall, you've got to drive in reverse, and uh, don't hit anything, don't hit anybody, and uh, uh, put the parking brake on before before you get off because it could roll off uh, the dock or roll over somebody or something. And uh, uh, just so much going on. I remember uh, going to bed that night and having nightmares about forklifts and paperwork and feeling like I was never, ever going to get it down. Um, I remember the first time I got a job at a Burger King in, in, uh, in suburbia Baltimore. It was actually uh, in there in uh, the, the little town of White Marsh. I got a job at that Burger King. and It was really my first job uh, where it, it was hard-hitting and fast work. And those of you that work the, the, the food industry, other people may not know what you go through. That is hard, hard work. Yeah, you are exhausted by the end of the shift. And I remember my first day on the job at Burger King was a Friday evening outside of a big mall uh, in a parking lot. And I remember the line almost wrapping around the building twice. And they had me running the buns through the toaster and putting the frozen patties there into the broiler. And then they moved me over and they had me observe as they were putting mayonnaise, lettuce, tomato on the bun and then pickles, ketchup and onions on the on the meat there. And, uh, and then and then the cheese and then what you didn't put on uh, when someone wanted a special way. And I remember the guys were making these sandwiches and the ladies were making these sandwiches at such a pace that just blew my mind. And I remember going to bed that night and tossing and turning and having nightmares about making 
hamburgers. And then I got a job as a truck dispatcher just a few years back, and uh, it was much of computer work. And I can remember flying out to Chicago, and my brother already worked this job, and he was assigned to train me. And so I slept on the couch in his living room, and uh, I would wake up in the morning, and I would sit there with him at his computer, and he would teach me how to post a load that needed to be moved from one part of the country to another. And then we had to go and look for a driver, and we had to make appointments with both the pickup and the drop-off. And we had to learn how to send an email to the driver, and we had to learn how to put uh, uh, fuel money on the, uh, the fuel cart of the truck driver. And we had to communicate w- with all sorts of people. And I remember about five or six hours into the training looking at my brother and saying, my brain hurts, I cannot handle any more information, I need a break. Uh, you know, uh, the longer you do something that you're told to do, the longer you obey the proper processes, the more confidence you gain in doing the action. When I was a girls basketball coach, I remember the first day of practice was both filled with excitement and it was filled with great nerves. And uh, when you coach a Christian school girls basketball team, your varsity team is comprised of 7th graders to 12th graders. And if you can't get enough girls to come out, it can be comprised of 5th graders up to 12th graders. Fortunately, I didn't have to deal with 5th and 6th graders, I, I 7th to 12th grade girls. But every year you have 7th grade girls come out and you say, well, did you have tryouts? No, we were begging people to play. And so there were no tryouts. You took the most unathletic, uncoordinated young lady you could, and you were just glad they were there because you needed warm bodies to make a team. And I remember getting them out there uh, on the practice court. And every year, the first day of, first day, really the first week of practice, we would line them up there on the, the box right there by the hoop. And we would teach them how to shoot a layup and teach them the proper footwork. And then we would back them up and teach them how to do a dribble with the footwork. And then uh, teach them how to run up and then how to dribble and run up. And uh, those girls were so nervous and, and, and some of them were so fearful. And then uh, once they got the right side down, we'd move them over and teach them how to do it on the left side. You say, well, pastor, did those girls learn? Yes, every single girl I ever coached was able to eventually do a layup with both the right hand and the left hand because I taught them a system And as long as they obeyed the system, they gained confidence in shooting a layup. You know, as a basketball coach, there's nothing more gratifying than putting a seventh grader in a blowout game and having them uh, get the ball in an open court and go down and do a layup properly and watch the ball go through the net and see the smile and the joy on their face from the success of following, obeying the process and gaining confidence. Do you know, Christian, that the Christian life is no different than driving a forklift, making a hamburger, uh, uh, being a truck dispatcher, shooting a layup? In this sense, God has laid out for you what you are to do as a Christian. And when you obey the book, you gain confidence in being a Christian. Boy, I watch Christians, they 
fumble through the Christian life and they question whether or not they're even saved. I know people who have prayed the sinner's prayer 15, 20 years ago and then wandered away from church and wandered away from the principles of the Bible and dipped their soul deep in sin and they've made their way back into my office or onto the phone with me and they question whether or not they're even saved. Why do they lack confidence about their own salvation? The answer is simple. They have not been obeying the Bible. They have been living a lifestyle apart from the Bible, in stark contrast to the Bible, and they lack that confidence. They lack that assurance. Early in the message, I will take us through the Bible and show uh, you uh, that salvation is a one-time transaction. Let me say this loud and clear. Once you get saved, you cannot lose your salvation. Period. Once you get saved, it's final. And I'm going to show you that from Scripture. I'm going to show you that from a whole bunch of different angles. And I'm going to give you a lock, seal type, uh, a proven way to know that you're saved. Now, all of these may not resonate with you, or rather any one of these may not resonate with you in particular, but everyone will understand some angle of this. And I hope that as I show you these various angles, I'll make a concrete case that once you're saved, you're always saved. Once you get saved, you must commit to follow the commandments of Christ. And you must commit to live in his system. You must commit to obey his teachings. And then you will gain more and more confidence in your faith. Uh, uh, Notice this quote. It's not going to be on the screen. It probably should be. It's not going to be. But write it down. Commitment to Christ brings about confidence in Christ. Let me say that again. Commitment to Christ brings about confidence in Christ. And how do we know that we're saved? Once you bow your head and you put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou art saved. Now, that's a version of Acts 16.31. Uh, that, that is uh, in the case of, of the way I'm using it now. But you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and you're saved as the Philippian jailer was in Acts 16. Once that's done, it's settled. And then you must commit to live a life that is to Christ. And then what happens is you have confidence in Christ. We're on a journey through First John. Tonight we will study verse by verse until we arrive at the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 19 down through verse 24. Now, we're going to look at two principal thoughts as well as a handful of subpoints below each of these truths. Point one uh, has two subpoints, and then point two, I believe, has four or five. Let me look here. Uh, uh, five subpoints, and so let's jump in tonight and notice point number one: our assurance. Our assurance. Let me give you letter A here. Letter A is the word facts. Facts. Look with me at First John chapter three and verse nineteen. It begins by saying this: "And hereby we know, we know that we are of the truth." Where do you know something? Do you know it in your heart? No, you know it in your head. How can you know uh, something? You know truth. You know facts. Look down at verse 14. Uh, We know that we have passed from death unto life, or rather up at 14. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Again, we know, we know that we have passed from death unto life. 
unto life. Look with me at 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. And I'll save the heavy teaching for this verse uh, when we get there as we go through the book. But look at it uh, here, surface with me. These things have I written to you that believe in the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye uh, may believe on the name of the Son of God. This is something we can be certain of. Now, I've met a lot of people, and I've asked them, do you know for sure that you're going to go to heaven when you die? And one of the responses that I get is, no one can know that. No one can know that. Well, not according to the book of First John. Over and over and over again, it says that you can know. You can know. Uh, let me give you several facts, facts from Scripture as to why you can know that once you put your faith in Christ, you are always saved. You don't ever have to come back to Him and ask Him to save you again. It's a one Time transaction. Uh, here's the first fact. All my sins, all of them are blotted out. Acts chapter 3 verse 19 says this, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the time of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. By the way, Jesus looked ahead in time and saw your life. He saw your birth date. He saw your death date. He saw the day you'd be saved. He didn't just save you of the sins up to that point. He saves you of all of your sins all the way to your death date. He swept all of them together. He compiled them. He took them to Jesus. He placed them on Jesus. And Jesus died for your future sins the day you got saved. He blotted out all of them. Your eternal record, uh, it's like uh, if you made a mistake on a test in class, you take a pen and you you draw over the wrong answer until it was not readable anymore. God has taken his pen, he's dipped it in his ink, and he's blotted out every sin in any book that would have recorded your sin. Your sins, the day you got saved, were blotted out. Uh, how can you know that once you get saved, you're always saved? Let me give you another one here. You can only be born again once. You can only be born again once. John chapter 3, uh, we find uh, Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. He was a, a rabbi, a teacher of the Jews. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. No man can do these miracles that thou doest except uh, God be with him. Uh, uh, Jesus answered and saith unto him, Verily, verily, surely, surely, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus saith, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water, that's, a, that's the natural physical birth, and of the spirit, that's that spiritual birth, that being born into the family of God, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. If you believe that you can lose your salvation, then you believe that you can be born again more than once. My friend, you can only be born again one time. Uh, here's another reason why once you're saved, you're always saved. Uh, and excuse my politically incorrect language here, but those of you over the age of 25 will know what I mean when I say this. God is not an Indian giver. God is not an Indian giver. John chapter 3 verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have. It's a receiving, everlasting life. Romans 6.23 calls salvation a gift of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you believe you can lose your salvation, then what you believe is that God gave you the gift of eternal life, 
And then when you messed up in sin, God went back and said, reached down and said, oh, nope, I want it back. My friend, once God transfers ownership of your eternal life to you, it can never be taken back again. If you believe that God can take your salvation away, then you believe that God is a thief. And my friend, God is not a thief. Let me give you another angle here. Sonship can never be broken. Sonship can never be broken. John 1.12 says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. The Spanish word for become there is the word convertir, or the English word convert. Convert into the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name. A wonderful thing happened the day that you got saved. God took you and he converted you from a son of the devil into a son of God. That adoption, as Colossians describes it, uh, happens. It's a one-time transaction and God will never, ever disown you. Sometimes my children mess up. Sometimes they misbehave. Sometimes they get me really upset. Uh, Sometimes they do things that really, really get me upset. But you know what I've never done? I've never walked my son or my daughter to the door and kicked them out of the house and said, until you get this right, you cannot be my child anymore. No, my children will always be my children regardless of my behavior. Have you believed on the name of the Son of God for salvation? Then you've been adopted. You have been converted into his son or his daughter, and that will never, ever change. Let me give you yet another angle. An eternal gift cannot be temporated, uh, uh, terminated rather by a temporal being. Let me say that again. An eternal gift cannot be terminated by a temporal being. Now, this just gets down into flat uh, simplicity. But look here, Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is what kind of life? It's eternal. How can something that's eternal be brought to an end? Someone says, I believe I can lose my salvation. I'd say, you are a sinner. You are a temporary being. Your sinful body will one day lie in a grave. How can your temporal self terminate something God calls eternal? Who are we to say that God is not great enough to pour down His grace upon us and forgive us when we mess up as His children? Who are we to say that God reaches down and takes away that gift? If He took it away, then it wasn't eternal To begin with, it is an eternal gift. It is the gift of God. It is eternal, and it was purchased through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yet another angle. Your salvation is protected inside of Jesus' hand. Your salvation is protected inside Jesus' hand. John chapter 10, verse 28 says, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never, 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 never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Boy, if God sure wanted us to believe that we could lose our salvation, he sure has made it difficult for us to believe that. He said that he gives it to us, so it's ours. He calls it eternal. It means it can never be terminated. And he says we'll never perish. And then he takes it a step further and says we're inside of his hand and no one can remove us from that hand. Let me give you another angle. Uh, your salvation is double protected inside of the Father's hand. So you are in Jesus' hand, and then Jesus' hand is wrapped up in the Father's hand. Look at verse 29 of John 10. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. If I were to... Pastor uh, Miles, come up here for me if you could uh, real quick. If I were to put this pen in your hand, squeeze that tight, and then I were to take my hands and wrap them around yours, boy, it's going to be difficult for anyone to get that out of your hand. But we're just human men. If you were Jesus and I was God, it'd be impossible. In fact, if you wanted to get out of Jesus and the Father's hand, you wouldn't be able to get yourself out because it's lock, proof, 
tight. Amen? You don't have corona, do you? Okay, because if so, I need to go wash my hands. Amen. All right. Uh, uh, so uh, we are double protected inside the Father's hand. Uh, let me give you yet another reason why you can't lose your salvation. Since your works did not earn your salvation, your works cannot keep your salvation. Let me say that again. Since your works did not earn your salvation, your works cannot keep your salvation. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 makes this abundantly clear. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Your works did not save you. Then, my friend, why would your works keep you saved? If you believe that somehow you must be on your best behavior and you can't commit certain sins. By the way, I've asked many folks who believe you can lose your salvation this question. Where is the line in scripture that you have to cross to lose your salvation? Funny, no one's been able to answer that question. They've all looked at me and said, I'm not sure. I don't know where the line is. Well, boy, if God, uh, if we could lose our salvation, don't you think God would have devoted chapters in the Bible to tell us how and what to avoid? It's funny that he did not include that. Uh, We cannot earn our salvation by works. We cannot keep our salvation by works. And then let me give you one more. And there's many others. But for sake of time, let me give you one more. Your day of redemption. This is when you enter heaven. Your day of redemption is sealed By the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Now, uh, don't let your feelings get, get in front of the facts. The facts are the facts. Once you get saved, you will always be saved. And I've had people say to me, well, pastor, I'm not sure if I meant the prayer when I prayed it. I'm not sure if I really had a heart of faith uh, when I prayed it. And listen, you have to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You have to go back to that moment where you called on the name of the Lord and you have to check your own sincerity and make sure you did believe. But can I just remind you what Jesus said? He said it only takes the, 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 the mustard seed of faith to move mountains. Boy, God's not looking for a whole lot of faith. You bowed your head in sincerity and you called on the name of the Lord. You put your trust and your reliance on Him. That day, your eternal destination was sealed and it can never be changed. Letter A, facts. Letter, fee, you've prob- uh, letter B, you've probably already figured it out. It's the word feelings. Feelings. Let me tell you a little secret this evening. I don't always feel saved. Um, after I have lost my temper and blown my lid... The moments behind that, I don't really feel saved. After I've acted out in pride and, and, and stuck my chest out and, and been proud as a peacock, I don't feel real saved, especially while I'm feeling guilty over my sin. After I have cheated or lied or stolen, I don't feel saved. After I have complained or gossiped, I, I don't feel saved. After I have doubted God's love and care for me, or wondered, and and I haven't done this any time recent, but when I was a younger Christian, I would wonder if God was even real. And I was saved. And I would wonder, is this whole thing just a myth? Is it even true? Uh, and, And I've doubted whether or not God was real, or if He was real, if He actually cared about me. Uh, you know, you, you see the psalmist crying out and saying, Lord, have you stopped up your ears? Are you listening? Hello, have you forgotten me? And you see that sentiment uh, expressed by the psalmist. And I have felt that way. 
I have felt like my prayers were just bouncing around a room and God uh, uh, was too busy to pay attention to me. And when I have felt that way, you know what? I feel guilty that I questioned an almighty God. And, and right behind that, the guilt caused me to not feel saved. Look back at 1 John three nineteen. And hereby we know that we are of the truth. Look here. And shall assure our hearts before him. Shall assure our hearts. Notice the order here. We know the truth in our head, which is God's word. And when our heart begins to doubt, we go back to the truth in God's word, what we know in our head, and we allow our fa- the facts of God's word we place in our head to assure the feelings that are in our heart. You know, a lot of people make a lot of really, really poor choices in life because they allow their feelings to lead their facts. They allow their feelings to tell them how to act. We live in a day and age, anyone under the age of 25, please listen carefully to me. You have been taught by culture that feelings are more important than fact. And my friend, that's just not true. God gives us his book of truth. This is to lead the way. I see a lot of religions this way. Their emotionalism, their emotionalism, and to call out one group in particular. And I understand that there are exceptions, to, and I don't mean to use a broad sweeping statement. I'm sure uh, that someone could point to an example and say, well, it's not true here. Please understand, I'm speaking in the broader scope or spectrum. The Pentecostal religion uh, is feelings that are leading facts. They let their feelings tell them what to believe, and then the facts sort of Come in behind that. Uh, God does not want feelings to lead facts. He wants the facts or the truth to lead the feelings. Do you know that even though sometimes I don't feel saved, I can go back to that list I just read you, that list we looked at in Scripture, and I can be assured through Scripture that I am saved even if I don't feel saved. Do you know that I don't always feel married? When my uh, wife and I have had a fight or we've had an argument, uh, maybe I don't always feel like a parent. Uh, when my children upset me and I want to push them to the side and walk away or get in the car and go on a long drive. But whether or not I feel like I'm married, I am. Whether or not I feel like I'm a dad, I am. I don't always feel like a pastor, but you know what? I am. Are you the one that's been making me feel that way? I hope not. Amen? Only you know. Amen. And I know. We are to make sure we let our, the facts lead our feeling. Why? And please hear me out. Oftentimes, our emotions deceive us. You say, well, pastor, in my heart, I'm just not sure. Can I remind you what Jeremiah said about his heart? He said, the heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked who can know it. Have you ever doubted your salvation? I think every Christian, or most every Christian at some point does, maybe early on. Simply put, if you, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ to take away your sin and give you eternal life, then you are on your way to heaven, period. End of story. It's done. It's a done deal. Don't trust your feelings. Trust the Scripture. Look at verse 20 of 1 John 3. For if our heart condemn us, look here, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Boy, uh, I would rather trust God than trust my feelings. I would rather trust what God says than how I feel. Uh, And so are you going to rely on what you feel or what God knows? 
number one, our assurance. We can be assured we are saved if you've put your faith in Christ based on what Scripture says. Number two, our actions. Our actions. Look at me at 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 21. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. Many Christians get stuck wondering whether or not they are saved. Others move on and never doubt their salvation. Uh, Let me give you an example here. If I was an orphan child living on the streets and someone living on the other side of the country got hold of my information and then from a distance uh, uh, established a very shallow relationship with me, maybe a pen pal type relationship or a text relationship and a, a phone call here and there, and then they went to the courthouse and adopted me, I technically would no longer be an orphan. But until I move into their house and get my own room, and learn their system, and obey their rules, and eat out of their refrigerator, and enjoy their company, I'm not going to actually feel like I'm their child. Imagine in this made-up scenario that this family has adopted me, but I refuse to live in their house. I refuse to follow their rules. At some point, I would question, begin to question the validity of the adoption, even the technical aspects of the adoption. However, if I were to move in to their home and then allow their home to become my home, then I would cease to question the validity of the relationship. Many Christians, please hear this, many Christians are by the letter of the law saved. They have been adopted. They question the validity of their salvation, as maybe they should, because they have never gotten into the Bible and allowed God's system for them to be their own system. Are they saved? Yes. But they don't feel saved because they're not in obedience to the lifestyle God has for them. Again, back to the varsity girls basketball illustration. Let's say that there was a young lady who signed up to play. But she only came to practice once a week. And then she had a doctor's note as to why she couldn't participate in the practice. And then she just sat on the sideline and watched. And then she showed up to every game but was never put into the game. At some point, she would begin to question whether or not she was even actually on the team. Many Christians have that sort of relationship with the Bible. Yes, they prayed the sinner's prayer. Yes, they were sincere. Yes, the Lord saved them. But they question the validity of their salvation because they sit on the sidelines. Boy, they never get involved. They never find a way to interject themselves into church life. And they never find a way to share their faith with anyone. And they just keep their distance from both the Bible and God's order of system. And while they are saved, boy, they sure give themselves a lot of reasons to question that salvation. Please notice this quote, to the extent that you obey God's plan for your life, to the same extent you will rest in his salvation for you. To the extent that you obey God's plan that he's laid out for your life, to the same extent you will rest in his salvation for you. This is why I titled the sermon this evening, Obedience Leads to Confidence. As a boy, when I was regularly obeying my father, I had confidence in our relationship. I could ask him to give me things. I enjoyed being in his company. I cared about the things he cared about. I valued deeply 
my relationship with my dad. Those seasons of times where I lived in rebellion to his rules, I did not feel comfortable asking my dad to give me anything. I had little confidence in the depth of our relationship. I did not enjoy dad's company. I didn't want to go with him to Home Depot or just anywhere. In fact, I'd avoid being in the car alone with him. I did not care much about the things he was interested in. I was living in rebellion to his rules, and as a byproduct, I really did not value my relationship with my father. And so it is with our relationship with God. When we obey him, we have confidence When we do not obey Him, our confidence in that relationship begins to fall apart. John lays out for us what a healthy relationship with God looks like. Now, I want you to consider these subpoints as a checklist for your behavior in your relationship with your Father God. And I want you to go through these and and just see how many of these you're attempting to live by. Letter A, notice, our requests, our requests. Look, look with me at 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 22. The Bible says, And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him. Do you know the number one reason why God does not give you good things is because you just don't ask him? Imagine with me that you are being given a tour of heaven. You've just died and... You arrived in heaven, and you got checked into your mansion, and an angel's giving you a tour all around heaven. You walk past an industrial park filled with warehouses. Now, again, this is an imaginary-type setup, but you ask the angel giving you the tour, what's inside of those warehouses? The angel replies, all of the blessings God wanted to give his children, but never did. Why, you ask? The angel looks back at you with a half smile on his face and says, well, because God's children never asked him for those blessings. We are so busy trying to take care of ourselves, trying to provide for our own needs, that we fail to stop and ask God to take care of us. Let me explain to you how this works. Jesus taught us in, uh, in, in the model prayer, he taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Here's how it works. When we pray that prayer, God gives us the strength to get up and go earn our daily bread. He does not just magically drop it on our doorstep, usually. He gives you the strength to go out and earn it. If I were to ask you who put the bread in your house, you would probably point at the one who earns the money in your home or the two of you that earn the money in your home and you say, that person did it. Well, where did you get the intellect and the strength to go earn it? You got it from God. What if someone were to lay you off? What if you were to lose your job? What if you were to uh, lose any ability at all to honestly put bread in your house? Then what? Well, the Bible says that I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. Because you pray regularly for God to give you your daily essentials, God continues to provide them even if you don't have the means to earn them. Christian, do you pray? Do you ask God for things? Do you ask God for things for yourself as well as things for others? Let her be, notice, prayer's requirement. 
prayer's requirement. Look back at verse 22 with me. It says, And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him. Look at the rest of the verse. Because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Here's how it works for many Christians. Here's how it's worked in my life. Many times. Uh, uh, And I'll just use me as an illustration. Uh, I'll live contrary to the Bible. I'll sort of kind of walk my own path and depend on myself. And there's a lot of self-trust and self-faith. And I don't stop and pray for my daily bread. I don't stop and pray for much of anything. And I'm not talking about right now, but I'm talking about past seasons in my life. And uh, I kind of stumble through life uh, feeling overconfident in my limited abilities. And, and then I get stuck. Then I get to a place where I can't really move forward. I I get myself in a pickle. I get myself in a bind. And then and only then would I turn and pray and ask for God's help. And you know what oftentimes I found is that God didn't help me. It almost felt like God was just ignoring my prayer. Well, why? Again, look at verse 22. Whatsoever we ask, we receive of him. Why? Because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. If you're not going to keep the commandments of Scripture and you're not going to do those things that are pleasing in his sight, he is under no obligation, Christian, to answer or even listen to your prayer. So here's what happens. We pray, God ignores us, and rightfully so, and then we think, well, prayer doesn't work. And then we give up on it. Well, is it prayer that's broken? Christian, please listen to me. Is it prayer that's broken, or is it that our Christian lives that are broken? You see, we lose confidence in our God, and it isn't God that's changed. It's us that needs to change. It's not God that's failed on His promises. It's us that's failed to live according to the commandment of the book. I believe the number one reason why Christians don't get things from God is because they don't ask. The number two reason is because we ask, but we're living the lifestyle contrary to the Bible, and God just turns a deaf ear to us. And he says, go follow the book. At least make an attempt at obeying the Bible, and then we can revisit what you're asking me. 1 John 3.22 cannot be any more clear that, Christian, for you to get good things from God, you must be obedient to his commandments. What are his commandments? Let's continue. Let her see. Notice our reliance. Our reliance. Look with me. Uh, let's see here. Look at me. Look with me at First John three verse twenty three. And this is the commandment. So we're told in twenty two that in order to get things from God, we need to keep the commandments. And then twenty three tells us what the two biggest commandments are. This is the commandment that we should believe on the name of His Son Jesus Christ. Now, if you're saved, you've done this. You've done this to be saved. But I would just remind you that you need faith to get saved, and then you need faith to get sanctified. You need faith for the Lord to save you, and and that's half of it. You're saved, and it's a done deal. But now you've been adopted by a new father. You've inherited new house rules. And in order for you to fit into the system that God has for you laid out in Scripture, you must continue to walk by faith. Boy, we've been talking about faith on Wednesday evening, believing on Wednesday evening. We've been looking at different characters in the Bible who grew by faith. And I would just tell you that faith is a spiritual muscle. 
that takes time to develop. If you're a new babe in Christ, uh, where do you begin this faith journey? You, bega- you begin by reading the Scriptures. Uh, 1 Peter 2, 2 tells us, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word that they may grow thereby. And you, the Word of God, you must eat it up. You must take it in. You must drink it in. By the way, the meat of God's Word is when you digest it yourself. The milk of God's Word is when a preacher or a teacher digests the Word of God and gives you the milk of His Word as a byproduct. A cow eats meat and distributes milk. And uh, uh, we eat the meat of Scripture and distribute. And this is why it's important that you attend church and you listen to Bible preaching. As you drink in the milk of God's Word, you begin to develop spiritual teeth. And then you begin to read God's Word and it makes more sense. Are you, is your lifestyle reliant on Christ? Let me circle back to prayer here as it ties into believing. Do you know, am I out of the frame? I think I just moved out of the frame. i I, I got to stay behind the pulpit. Amen. Do you know the number one reason why Christians don't pray? I gave you the number one reason. Let me give you the number three reason. The number three reason why Christians don't pray, or, or I guess I gave you the number one reason why Christians don't get things from God. The number one reason why Christians don't pray is because they think they can do it on their own. They're relying on themselves. Well, why would I ask God to help be an encouragement to that person when I can just say something nice to him? Why would I pray for our country uh, uh, when I can do my part? Well, I'm social distancing. I'm staying at home. Do you realize our problem in this country isn't a virus? It's, it's a sin problem. We need to be on our face before the Lord. We're so dependent on self. Our faith is not in Jesus Christ to sanctify us. It's in ourselves to sanctify ourselves. We believe that somehow we can fix our flesh and clean up our act. And God says, lay down faith in yourself and follow the commandment and believe on me. Letter B, or, or, or letter D rather, our regard. Our regard. Look back at verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another, love one another, as he gave us commandment. Now, we've looked at this over and over and over again. But uh, let's look at it yet in another context. To trust Jesus, we must believe that he loves us. And then we must fully love him. And then after we've developed this love affair with our God, we then must turn around and love others. When I was, uh, uh, when I was in good with my dad as a boy, which I was most of the time, I had little seasons of rebellion. But for the most part, my dad and I have always had or have had a great relationship a, a good share of the time. I can remember being a little boy and um, going out uh, with my dad on Saturdays to visit the bus route. And my dad was a bus captain pretty much the whole time I knew him uh, as a child. And uh, we'd bring in boys and girls from impoverished areas and help give them a ride to church on a big school bus. And uh, we'd go out on Saturdays and we'd visit these children, look for new children uh, and families even that would ride the bus. And I remember going out with my dad on Saturdays, and my dad would listen to this really corny radio show on NPR called Car Talk. I don't know if you know what Car Talk is. I've asked a lot of people. Most people don't know. But Click and Clack the Tabbit Brothers, and uh, they had a strong Boston accent. They knew cars really well. And people would call in with car problems that couldn't be solved by your average mechanic. And uh, they would ask questions to the consumer of the car, the person who owned the car. And they would uh, offer a, a, a solution to the problem. And then a week later, the people would call back into the show and let them know if their solution worked. And Click 
and Clack owned uh, uh, their own car uh, mechanic shop, and uh, they were really, really good mechanics. And so the show was uh, uh, funny to my dad and became funny to me. You know, the interesting thing is, and if you know my dad, uh, not too many know him well. Pastor Morales knows him pretty well. He was on staff with him in another ministry. But those that know my dad well know that my dad's sense of humor is a little bit different than the average person's sense of humor. Uh, and he laughs at things that the average person just doesn't really find all that funny. My dad enjoys puns and plays on words. And he has a dictionary that's uh, as big as the Oxford Dictionary itself. He probably has every word in there memorized. I'm not kidding. And um, I would come to school and I would talk to other kids about car talk. And you know what? Everyone would look at me like I had three heads. No one thought it was funny. No one found any of the puns in the show interesting. But you know what? I found them interesting. Do you know why I liked car talk? Because my dad liked car talk. Why should you love others? Because your father loves others. Why should you have an interest for those who are hard to get along with? Because God has an interest in those who are impossible to love. You see, as I grow deeper in my love for the Lord... As my faith walk grows stronger and stronger with Him, it will be more natural and more natural to love even the most broken around us. Let me finish the message this morning with letter E, our relationship. Look back with me at 1 John chapter 3 and look at verse 24. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. You see the connectivity here? He that keepeth his commandments... The Christian that keeps his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. Boy, this has a John chapter 15 vibe to it. The branch and the vine, they're intertwined. The branch is reliant on the vine to put out the fruit. The vine is reliant on the branch to get the nutrients uh, for the fruit. They depend on each other. Remember, without him, you can't. But without us... He won't. Without him, we can't. But without us, he won't. It's not that God can't do the impossible. He could have the rocks cry out. He's relying on us to proclaim the truth. Boy, he, he, he wants to use us. Too many Christians have tried too long to live the Christian life through the power of their own flesh. And I just remind you, my friend, the Christian life is not about self-improvement, it's about self-abandonment. We must learn to abandon our flesh. We must learn to let the Spirit of God guide us. The rest of uh, verse 24 goes on and talks about how the Holy Spirit indwells us. And you know, that's really the key, is yielding the Spirit of God. Having that tight-knit relationship with the Father through the Holy Spirit. And I would encourage you this evening uh, to do that. You know, uh, to just bring the sermon to a close... Once you begin a, a regular prayer life, making requests to God, and once you begin living a lifestyle that is fitting with prayer's requirements, you are doing your best to obey His commandments, you're doing your best to do those things that are pleasing His sight, once you begin to rely on God for your daily needs, and once you begin to love others the way Christ has called you to, and once you seriously develop that relationship with your Heavenly Father, 
you know what you're going to find is that your heart will condemn you no more. You'll walk away from doubting your salvation. You'll walk into a place where you'll have confidence in Christ. How? You've obeyed the Father. And that obedience leads to confidence. How about it, Christian? Some of you know you're saved. You know you're saved. But you know you're wayward. You're backslidden. How about we get back and follow the actions laid out in Scripture? To those of you that are unsure of your salvation. Did you believe in the name of the Son of God? Did you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Then why don't you let facts lead your feelings? Let the truth of God's Word settle that in your heart. Lord, we pray tonight that you would guide us and help us to understand this passage. And Lord, where we fall short in living for you, may we step it up. Lord, many of us need to step our prayer lives up. Many of us pray, but we, we, we consume it upon our own lusts, as James describes. We, we ask amiss. We're praying, but we're living a lifestyle contrary to the Bible. And Lord, others of us, we're walking by sight and not by faith. Lord, others of us, we're not loving the brethren as we ought to. And then some of us, Lord, our relationship is lacking. We're, we're not really abiding in you the way we should. Lord, where we need to make changes, will you point that out in each of our hearts and lives? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.